0: Dot .org enjoy
1: welcome to this installment witness to yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden and I'm here at McGill University's Institute for Health and Social Policy to interview David Wright on his History of Toronto Sick Kids Hospital. One of the most vibrant fields in Canadian history focuses on the history of medicine. Today we are going to be talking about the Sick Children's Hospital of Toronto a Canadian hospital that also happens to be one of the world's top pediatric care hospitals. But this is much more than the history of the institution and the doctors and other health professionals who provide life-saving care. It is also a history of one of the country's most favored charities and the evolution of biomedical and clinical research in Canada. We are going to explore all of these themes with David Wright, the author of Sick Kids, The History of the Hospital for Sick Children, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2016. David is Professor of History and Canada Research Chair in the Department of History and Classical Studies at McGill University. He's also a member of that university's Institute for Health and Social Policy. David received his DPhil in History from the University of Oxford after completing his undergrad and graduate degrees in history here at McGill. As a postdoc at Oxford, he specialized in the history of health and medicine. From 1996 until 1999, he was the Wellcome Trust Lecturer in History of Medicine at the University of Nottingham. He then returned to Canada to take up an appointment in history at McMaster. In 2011, he moved to McGill, where he has continued his work on the history of health and medicine. His previous books include Mental Disability in Victorian England and Downs, the History of a Disability. David, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you. First, can you tell us how this particular book came about?
0: Well, it, um, it was not planned at all. I was in the middle of one or two other projects, and... I received an email from the University of Toronto Press saying that they were doing a national search for a new book project on the history of Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children. Now, the origins of their book project is rather interesting. As far as I understand, there was uh, some sort of fundraising or social gathering in which the then-president and CEO of Sick Kids, Mary Jo Haddad, was... Discussing the hospital and its place in Canadian society and its place in history with a board member who said, "You know, there should be a, a history of this hospital," uh, and Mary Jo uh, agreed. And uh, I, I believe this board member said, "Listen, you put it in place, and uh, we'll organize the, the funding through um, through the Sick Kids Foundation." And so, uh, this led to a series of um, sort of meetings and. Uh, an advisory board of Sick Kids, which contacted University of Toronto Press and and made it very clear that they wanted a scholarly book. Um, they wanted a scholarly book that was accessible, but one that would be peer reviewed and written by a historian of medicine uh, who is familiar with with the territory. And so, you know, ultimately I um, I contacted this committee and I was interviewed and I was fortunate enough to be uh, to be selected to write this. This history. So it's, it was a commissioned history, but it was one that um, the hospital uh, made it very clear that they would open up their archives, but I would be given sort of intellectual independence uh, and, and work at arm's length to write uh, a, a balanced and scholarly history of, of the hospital. Which would ultimately be peer reviewed through the University of Toronto Press. So for me, it was it was uh, the first time that I I've been in that position, and uh, uh, and it uh, was a, a wonderfully interesting uh, experience as as a historian to try to, to bridge sort of these different uh, um, different communities.
1: Well, commission histories are invariably case studies, and you're a, a historian that has dealt with very very broad themes in the past. When you took on this case study, uh, was it clear in your mind what a a study of one single hospital could tell you about the history of hospital care generally, or even more broadly, the history of medicine and health in Canada?
0: Sure. I, you know, I think that, um, you know, I've I've been teaching and researching the history of medicine now for over two decades, and there's now a fairly rich uh, body of literature on the history of hospitals uh, and the the challenges and opportunities of writing case studies of individual hospitals. Um, uh, I, I trained in Britain and there have been many um, fascinating case studies of you know some of the most famous hospitals in Britain uh, uh, as well as in Europe and so uh, I was familiar with you know with the the themes and with the challenges. Um, what was new to me was doing a commission history. You know, the, the fear is, of course, that, you know, that, that my expectations of what I'm going to do and the hospital's expectations of what I was going to do would be sort of vastly different. And was it? No, actually, I, you know, I I can't speak for the members of the advisory. here. They, you know, they, they published it. We always had a very good working relationship and... I think early on we had a we had a very respectful uh, understanding, and I, I made it clear to them. I said, "Listen, there there may be parts of this book you don't like, right? Uh, and there may be parts that I leave out because this is what we have to do as historians. We have to choose." what goes in and what uh, what gets left out at the end of the day. And, you know, you just have to be prepared that you might read a couple chapters and, you know, they might make you cringe or they might maybe feel uncomfortable. Well,
1: I could think of a couple of chapters that might've made them cringe in this book. It, Did it make them cringe? You know, I I, I don't know. Um, you know, I think at the end of the day, I was very,
0: very happy with how respectful they were about not not interfering with the book, right? They. Um, uh, they may well have had different understandings of particular events, uh, but at the end of the day, um, they trusted me to write uh, the best book I could, which I tried to, and I tried to be balanced. Uh, and rereading the book, which I do from time to time, you know, I was, I was sort of very happy with, with the end product, right? Uh, for me, the intellectually great challenge was to write a book about a hospital that affected so many people. Right. You know, you couldn't, one of the funny, uh, uh funny aspects uh, of, of this was going around and people would say, what are you working on? And you say, I'm working on a history of a hospital for sexual and everybody has a connection to the hospital. It would seem practically, uh, in, certainly in the province of Ontario, but even more broadly, everybody has a relative who was treated there has knows somebody who worked there. And so trying to do justice to the hospital, to write a hospital history that that was accessible, um, to individuals who are not trained as historians, uh, I think ultimately was um, was a great challenge, uh, uh, but one that uh, I sort of relished because I, you know, it really sort of pushed me as a historian to sort of go beyond uh, sort of academic writing and, and to try to pitch it much more broadly.
1: So, as you know, the Champlain Society was established to protect and disseminate primary documentation of historical significance and. We've been at this for a very long time. I was very interested in the main primary sources that you had to depend on to write this history. Can you uh, describe these primary sources because they're not the typical primary sources that you could rely upon in a commission, for example, business history?
0: Well, I, I think they might be more similar than, than you think. Uh, you know, I first of all, I want to acknowledge my research assistant Rene Saucier, who, who worked with me on this on this book and uh, did a lot of the primary research. You know, hospitals, uh, a particularly well-known, large, well-funded hospitals like Sick Kids um, often have uh, their own libraries or their own archives. Uh, so, you know, it was uh, the first port of call was to go through annual reports to look at uh, patient records, clinical records, um, research outputs, uh, and the like. And and so that was fairly straightforward, and I was quite familiar with dealing with patient records. Um, I should say that uh, that patient records. When you're looking at 20th century history, I was actually trained as a 19th century historian. When you move into the 20th century, there are uh, legal and ethical dimensions that one has to address, uh, it, both in terms of access and also in terms of anonymizing uh, patient records. So that was a, a particular challenge. But the Hospital for Sick Children had such a, a wide, uh, what they say in French, it's a wide sort of influence uh, throughout Toronto and. Ontario and, and throughout Canada, that, you know, you do run into sort of interesting challenges of uh, of using sources that are derived from popular culture. And I'll, I'll give you an example. When you start looking at the 1970s and 80s, telethons became extremely uh, important, right? And, you know, you smile, but I sort of remember these these very sort of bizarre telethons that be running for 24 or 48 or 72 hours, sort of Jerry Lewis type telethons. And, you know, and, and so you start to move into... Um, sources that are, you know, are in new media, um, television sources, digital sources and that. And so uh, because the book spans 140 years, you really, you're looking at different eras that are producing different types of historical sources um, that, you know, radio and television that pose particular challenges in terms of access and, uh, and and
1: analysis. Right. The difference that I was talking about was, you know, in companies you have the minutes of decisions uh, are the minutes of a board of governors uh, the same as the minutes of a corporation? And do they give you the same kind of ability to reconstruct the key decision points? of the enterprise?
0: I think they're quite similar. So there would be different different committees. and different. There was a medical advisory board, for instance, the MAB, uh, which would uh, most often include the most senior medical chiefs who are making decisions about resource allocation, for example. But the, and I have to assume that like business history, many of them are quite dry. You're trying to read between the lines. Uh, you know, there may or may not be sort of minuteed, and uh, you may or may not be able to, you know, to associate particular views and points of contention. Uh, they, they could be a bit sanitized. Uh, so, you know, they, they weren't the most helpful in general. What I found particularly enlightening was actually the series of oral interviews that we engaged in. Of course, that's just relevant to the period of which people st- right. still have memories, right? But that's, you know, when you have people one-on-one and you conduct oral interviews, um, that's when you find out fascinating material and new avenues of research that you just wouldn't otherwise have been uh, alerted to uh, if you're just looking at the more formal um, institutional records.
1: That's right. So Sick Kids started as a very tiny operation and rented uh, quarters, uh, then moved into something that actually looked like a hospital on College Street in Toronto, and then finally to its... Uh, location on university avenue right after the second world war Uh, what were the key developments that propelled what was really a small and specialized hospital into one of the top pediatric hospitals in the world well
0: i think a lot of it was luck Uh, at the end of the day the the hospital was founded in the 1870s and you, you use the term hospital but it was really just a small group of middle class women who were engaging in in a charitable uh enterprise, uh, and who rented this, you know, this sort of row house. You know, that's what it was in the 1870s. Uh they had a small, like, small number of children, you know, single-digits, a dozen children, 15 children at any any point that who were being cared for. And in that regard, it was very similar to other initiatives throughout the British colonial world, right? The British, the British uh uh, in The British Dominions, right? So there are children's hospitals in Melbourne, for example, and children's hospitals in uh, in Scotland. So it wasn't it wasn't that unusual. Uh, what happened was that it became the, uh, for lack of a better word, the pet project of a newspaper baron uh, in the 1880s and 1890s in Toronto named John Ross Robertson. Uh, he's one of a long history, it seems, of Canadian newspaper barons who've had a great influence. Uh, on Canadian society. And he was an extraordinarily powerful, single-minded, uh, you know, they refer to him as the, the the paper tyrant, right? He had a lot of money, he had a lot of political power, and he uh, decided to, to pour all his energy and money into building what he considered to be the most, you know, the state of the art, the most important children's hospital in the world. Um, and that building is now 67 College Street, um, it's the home of Canadian Blood Services for those who are from Toronto. It's, it's uh, very close to Women's College Hospital, the new Women's College Hospital. And uh, it, at the time, in the 1890s, was really it. It was a state-of-the-art children's hospital in the world. Um, it reputedly had the first X-ray machine in in, in Canada. Uh, it became the center of this this massive uh, effort to pasteurize milk in Toronto, and uh, so by the by the dawn of the twentieth century, it was extremely well known, and it was uh, attached to the University of Toronto's medical school, uh, which was becoming quite famous for a variety of reasons, not least of which was the. Um, the research associated with it in the 1920s and the discovery of insulin. So, um, so that was that was one important aspect. I would say the second was there was an important discovery or discovery. There's, uh, yeah, I, I guess I will call it discovery. There was there's research on um, vitamin enriched foods, which led to the marketing of pablum, which for those who are old enough who was a very very famous uh, enriched cereal of the post World War II era. Um, whose royalties basically fed into the hospital and funded the hospital for decades. Uh, One researcher referred to Pablum as the, you know, the mush that made sick kids rich. (laughs) Uh, And apparently it was mush. Apparently it tasted like one person compared it to sort of wet Kleenex or something because this is, you know, that, but it was, it was extremely popular in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. uh, And the royalties you know, bankrolled sick kids uh, in the middle decades of the 20th century and gave it the ability to you know you know hire the best researchers and build the best facilities et cetera um, so that was the second the third I would say was sort of geographic and by that I mean there was a concerted effort throughout the middle decades of the 20th century both by the hospital and by the University of Toronto to prevent a second medical school in Toronto and that's important because. Toronto becomes the metropolis of Canada, right? It's growing massively in the fifties and sixties. And yet there's only one children's hospital for, you know, uh, a city that is becoming very, very large. And that concentration of of power, of resources, of donations, um, makes SickKids an extremely important institution. Uh, and, you know, it also is is Achilles' heel to a certain extent because it's, you know, the only game in town. Um, And when you think about it, Montreal, which now is about half the size uh, of Toronto, had three children's hospitals, right? And and Toronto only had one, and it was all about sick kids. And so I think that, you know, added to the power and prestige uh, because everything was happening there, and there was a lot of money and resources being ploughed into it.
1: So it was a virtual monopoly and I had no idea that when I was being fed pablum, and I was, that that was going directly into the coffers of Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto.
0: Well, the royalties went into the coffers. <laughs> you know, there were, there were many companies that made a lot of money off vitamin enriched foods, not just Pablum, but enriched bread, and, you know, it was considered to be extremely important in the middle of the 20th century.
1: Of course, this history has its darker moments, too, and one of the most infamous cases in Canada involved a nurse at Sick Kids and the death of 54 infants. Can you describe what happened and why and what changed as a consequence of this terrible event?
0: Oh my goodness, well, this is a a very long and very complicated story, Um, but in brief, there were a series of suspicious deaths in the early 1980s in in an acute ward in the hospital. And the uh, number of, of nurses Sort of alerted the medical leadership to their concerns about this spike in mortality in these wards. Um, there was a lot of debate about whether, in fact, this, there was anything sort of anom- anomalous about this. It was a critical care ward. You know, the you know ju- you know infants and young children die at the hospital regularly, um, but there was enough concern that the police ultimately were contacted. And here, um, the story took a rather. Um, unfortunate turn in as much as the police investigated from the start as, as potential, potential homicides uh, and ended up charging a nurse, Susan Ellis, as a sort of the common denominator between these suspicious deaths. They were looking at, you know, who was on, who was on duty in various shifts. Uh, she was charged uh, with uh, just four or five counts of, of, uh, of homicide. And you could imagine that turned into a media frenzy right? The idea that there might be a pediatric nurse who's also a serial killer, right? This is, you know, this is the, the type of thing that uh, sent the, the news media into a sort of sense of, you know, apoplectic concern. Uh, so it, this, you know, the, the actual trial itself didn't last, the initial trial didn't last that long. The judge ended up throwing out the case um, for uh, for a lack of evidence and not least of which was the fact that a couple of the cases which she was being charged with in fact she wasn't on that she' switched her shift with somebody else but that hadn't appeared in the official records and so to make a very long story short she was acquitted and then there was years and years of inquiries um, a, a public, commission, the Grange Commission, uh, and then inquiries into the inquiries uh, about the conduct of the police, uh, the conduct of uh, researchers who had concluded that, uh, suggested that the deaths were due to high levels of digoxin. And this more or less continued for an entire decade of the 1980s until uh, the last of the lawsuits and settlements had had completed. So, you know, what, what happened as a result of it? Um, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of tragedy, uh, a number of ruined lives, um, but not anything definitive. In fact, uh, it continues to this day where there's a debate about whether there were any murders or not, and what were the causes of the deaths? How many deaths were actually suspicious? Um, there have been many you know documentaries and published books on this topic. And what makes it fascinating from a historical standpoint is that the more amount of time that has has elapsed after the event, the the murkier it seems to be. It's it's less clear rather than more clear.
1: And I must say that's true because at the time it seemed clear. The media made it out to be clear. It was front page news. I remember it very well. And at least at the earlier stages, it seemed clear. And then uh, it started to get in a sense, harder to understand with time. So what you say really resonates. Yeah,
0: there were there were many um, technical aspects about the digoxin hypothesis that you know leading experts in the country were disagreeing about in the '80s and have disagreed about ever since uh, in terms of whether the tests uh, were you know were accurate about what what are natural what are reasonable levers of of digoxin in deceased infants, right? There's a whole bunch of things which are never, I think, properly resolved. But I think the episode is fascinating. It's fascinating from a legal standpoint, right? This is, uh, you know, this is one of the first televised inquiries and commission in, in Canadian history. It's, it's fascinating from a standpoint of the history of nursing, because the nursing profession really mobilized after this. They felt that she and other nurses who had testified had been treated in very shabbily. Uh, so it was, it's, by nursing historians, they see this as, a, as an important sort of mobilizing moment for the history of nursing. Uh, so, but for, for the hospital, there was this, you know people referred to this dark cloud, right? Uh, that it, it caused a sort of sense of mistrust Towards the hospital, which hadn't really existed before, people, you know, people were claiming that perhaps they were they covered up or they weren't being forthcoming uh, about, you know, about uh, their role uh, in suspicious deaths at this time, and so uh, it was a difficult time for for uh, for the hospital. That's for sure.
1: Now, Sick Kids is also a charity, and what I found fascinating was your description of how a charity works in this way. And uh, the, the whole idea of giving to hospitals, particularly since we had the introduction of universal hospital coverage back in the late 1950s, uh, and that seemed to have not only no appreciable impact on charitable donations to hospitals, but in fact charitable donations have been growing in size, as you document in this book. So. What 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 is going on here? How can we understand this?
0: Well, it's it's a great question, and then certainly the hospital authorities in the fifties and sixties felt that the introduction of hospitalization insurance of provincially run uh, medical services would lead and lead to an end in this sort of charitable impulse. They really did fear that, and many of them created these foundations, hospital foundations, because they thought the the government was going to take over the money in those foundations too. Um, but it never happened, and. For, you know, as, as a historian, I try to look at the very sort of the long durée of, of, of charitable giving. And, and what I try to argue in the book is that the Hospital for Sick Children was based upon Great Ormond Street's Hospital for Sick Children. And it drew upon a centuries-old British tradition of medical charity. And what this consisted of was the creation of, of civic hospitals that were purposely not supposed to be denominational right? They were were civic enterprises of individuals coming together regardless of, well, theoretically, regardless of class, regardless of religion, and contributing to a a joint uh, project of community building in the public interest. And clearly, that was a model that proved very durable over time, right? The people appreciated an institution in society that was there to help the vulnerable to help other individuals that wasn't um, that wasn't beholden to a to a particular party to a particular religion to anything that was part of creating of community and 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 you know when you're treated in a hospital when you have a child treated in the hospital you know when you have someone work you start to have very strong sort of emotional connections to that hospital uh, and that proved to be you know very strong and very long standing regardless of whether um, by the middle of the 20th century, the vast majority of funding started to come from government, right? From government insurance programs. This it's, it's didn't matter to people. People wanted to give to this common enterprise, right? Of 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 doing good, uh, to borrow a title from a history of another hospital in Toronto. And so, um, so yes, it's it, that's one of the fascinating aspects about it. Uh, if I can add an anecdote, uh, when I was writing the uh, the hospital's history. I had a meeting with the head of SickKids Foundation. Now, SickKids, the charitable foundation, SickKids is one of the largest in the world, right? And it's, it's very, very successful. And uh, the then president of SickKids Foundation told me that with the discussion over possible Medicare in the United States, he was fielding calls from children's hospitals in the U.S. about, you know, what is the impact right, of charitable giving once you move to a state, a so-called state-run system. And he was reassuring his American counterparts, actually, you know, uh, it continues, right? It, it, at the end of the day, it has uh, quite, um, quite a limited uh, impact on the charitable impulse.
1: Well, today the hospital has over 2,000 researchers, as you noted in your book. Uh, and it has this impressive research cathedral that faces out over Bay Street in Toronto, um, can you describe the evolution of what I would call this medical industrial research complex in Toronto, which is now one of the largest in the world? And Sick Kids Hospital' role in that was it central, or was it a peripheral role in creating this large medical industrial complex?
0: No, I, I think that Sick Kids saw a manifestation of uh, a broader process that was. Playing itself out in 20th century medical research and clinical practice. And so, by that, I mean that the second half of the 20th century sees an explosion in terms of interest and funding for medical research. So, you know, in Canada, one sees that through the establishment of the Medical Research Council of Canada, which is now been sort of re renamed, reconfigured as Canadian Institutes for Health Research. But back then, it was the Medical Research Council of Canada, and the you know public funding for medical research uh, that was not always, but often institutionally based, being conducted by uh, clinician scientists, so individuals who are medically trained, who are seeing patients, who are also conducting medical research. And there's a sort of you know you imagine there's a symbiosis over time you know, you need to have patients to do trials, to do research, and so if you're doing clinical work in a particular area, whether it's, you know, diabetes, for example, then, you know, you start doing research related to childhood diabetes, and you start to engage some of your patients in clinical trials, and uh, it evolves sort of naturally. Uh, And, you know, part of the dynamic is that hospitals start to, over time, become dependent on external funding for research. They uh, Some of that external funding goes into salaries. Some of that external funding goes into research labs. uh, And there is a certain prestige as well of getting external funding and publishing papers. So this evolves over time and has both positive and one could argue negative aspects to it. right? The positive aspect is that there's basic medical research which leads from time to time to clinical breakthroughs. Uh, which have a direct impact on people's quality of lives or life expectancy. Uh, The negative side is that um, over time, external agencies uh, and sometimes private industry has an increasing influence over the activities that are occurring in public hospitals. Um, And one thinks of pharmaceutical uh, companies, for example. And so that can lead to tensions or uh, you know, different uh, perspectives or different interests uh, at play, uh, but certainly uh, the medical research which you, which you see embodied in this research tower, uh, this unbelievable, it was just completed actually at the beginning of when I was doing my research for the book, um, is I think a very physical manifestation of something that's happening more broadly in 20th century uh,
1: medicine. Well, let's uh, just briefly touch on uh, one of these tensions uh, that erupted, uh, and and of course the center of all of that was Children's Hospital again, and that's the case of Nancy Olivieri and the whole question of corporate sponsorship of medical research. I know this is a very complicated case, uh, my, uh, I was spinning reading it in your book because there's so many different dimensions to it. So I hesitate to get into it, but I would like to know in, in a couple of sentences what happened and what were, more importantly, the consequences of what happened because it appears to me that this changed the way in which research would be done in Canada from that point on.
0: Yes, well, I you know, I guess here it's the, the plug to uh, invite people to read the chapter in the book because it is uh, it is very complicated. Um, but put as briefly as possible, Nancy Olivieri was a, um, you know, was a clinician researcher at the hospital who uh, was engaging in research on, uh, amongst other things, uh, drugs for um, sickle cell disease and thalassemia. Um, she was in, uh, you know, a clinician, a clinician scientist of the 1990s. And as I try to demonstrate in the book, the middle of the 1990s was a very difficult period in terms of financing for medical research in Canada. There's, you know, as, as you will recall, provincial and federal debts, there are cutbacks, there is hospital restructuring. And so, uh, it was not uncommon for researchers to, uh, to secure funding from private industry, which ultimately, uh, Nancy Olivieri and her uh, then research partner Gideon Korn, did from uh, from a gen- generic uh, drug company called Apotex. Uh, and then there was a series of events in which there were um, you know academic disputes. Uh, there was uh, questions about uh, the efficacy of one of the drugs, the side effects uh, of, of of one of the drugs, and it it really snowballed into uh, quite a fascinating debate. Um, about the status of clinician researchers in uh, teaching hospitals affiliated to universities, and again, as I can put this as as briefly as possible, but you know, I'm I'm a historian at McGill. I have tenure, uh, and supposedly I can say more or less what I want to say without losing my position. Uh, If I write a history book that the principal of McGill University doesn't like, uh, she can't turn around and fire me, right? That's the the nature of having having tenure. However, doctors are by definition um, self-employed professionals who engage in, in effect, relationships and contracts with hospitals, which themselves are the training grounds for future doctors. And the status of Um, University-affiliated teaching hospitals, like SickKids or other dozens around the country, uh, are are, are ambiguous, right? Are they independent? Are they actually part of the university? And so the the debate uh, was as much about, um, do these clinician researchers have the protection of academic freedom or not? And you're right. Ultimately, the very, very long story leads to a reconsideration of the protection of clinician researchers, but also of uh, the process of uh, ethics approval uh, when dealing with patients. But that's, uh, I guess, a much, a much longer story. But one sees the emergence of, of a new national protocol for securing, um, securing research involving human subjects.
1: That's right. It has affected all of the social sciences, anyone conducting Uh, human research is subject to that protocol that came out at that time. Well, David, thank you so much. Uh, My guest today was David Wright. We talked about his book, Sick Kids, A History of Toronto's Hospital for Sick Children, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2016. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.org where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshallden. And this podcast was recorded at McGill University on June 18th, 2019. It was produced by Hugh Backhurst in Toronto.